Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. One of the things I think about having a long career in intelligence is it's very humbling. You're always working with people who are so incredible and so smart, and you always feel like you have the least to offer in the room, but it also makes sure that you're bringing your best every day. My dad, one of the things he always said as I was learning the restaurant business was, I'm teaching you skills. You can go anywhere in the world and be a server and make a living. You can do anything you want to do and sustain yourself. And I would always kind of roll my eyes, but it ended up being very true for me because during that time, that is how I sustained myself. I was like, it's possible. In my life, and I've given speeches on this, there are lots of things that people said that couldn't be done or would be challenging convention or that I wouldn't do. And I spent my life challenging that. And so it's possible felt like a good fit for me. Jennifer Banwert is running for U.S. Senate in North Carolina as a moderate Republican. Right after college, Ms. Banwert served as a legislative staffer on Capitol Hill, where she successfully supported groundbreaking Republican-driven initiatives to include Contract with America and Contract with the Family. While working for Congress, Ms. Banwert was also selected to support a presidential campaign where she led outreach efforts and policy research critical to the campaign. After graduating from college, she worked briefly for a policyfocus.com where she was able to establish depth and breadth. The bulk of her career began with the Department of Defense in the area of tactical operations support. Jennifer has worked in a number of innovation centers, joint government agency centers, and with the military in efforts to continuously improve support to the warfighter and national policymakers. Jennifer also routinely worked with the government, academic, and industry partners to investigate and implement the best possible solutions for tactical and strategic analytic challenges in support of the Department of Defense. Jennifer is a recipient of a Secretary of Defense Medal, two National Intelligence Meritorious Unit Citations, and a Joint Meritorious Unit Award. Her campaign slogan, It's Possible. I want to start off by telling you, I listened to your three-minute speech on your website, and I was very inspired. Now, I do know I know you, but I was like, hot damn, I got to vote for this woman. How can I support? So our husbands worked together for how many years? Two years? Three years? Pretty much like the whole time they were at the agency together. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're both electrical engineers. Both tall, lanky guys. And they were roommates. Uh, well, I remember he was living with you while his girlfriend, when I met him. <laughs> that was the second time they were housemates. <laughs> <laughs> then he's like, oh, I have this girl. He's like instantly in love. So I show up. I think it was like a taco party at your house. I think it was at John's house. And I think it was Eric's birthday party, actually. And we were like, okay. Like, it'll be fine. He'll be fine. It'll, it'll be fine. It's, you know, this is Cosgrove and he'll have a good relationship and we'll just see where it goes. And it was different 
just having seen him in some other relationships and then seeing sort of just uh, how enthusiastic he was and how quickly this sort of had a hold on him. I think we had a feeling that it was going to be different. I don't think I spoke much at that party. And then I don't feel like we hung out or saw you that much. We had a lot going on. Brian had a house under construction while working full time. Then I got pregnant right away. Then I started the business and you had the twins, I think about the same time. And so we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And I don't think you were like a big Facebooker, right? I was not on social media at all until I started this campaign. I knew of you, right? And I remembered your husband, but I hadn't seen you. And I go to this meeting and there's this woman like talking all over the meeting and like telling everybody how it's going to be. And I think I like pulled you aside after and I was like, I need to know who you are. And then, oh, I knew who you were. (laughs) But I was like, who is this lady? Kindred spirit. (laughs) So that's when we reconnected, probably right before you moved to North Carolina. That's right. And you were, you had just started your first company and we had a conversation about that as well, because that was always something I had thought I would want to do someday. Yeah. I wanted to recruit you, but you were like, no, (laughs) you said politely, like, if I do it, it'll be my own thing. (laughs) Yes. I had so much invested in the government, so much time and everything that If I was going to leave, I was really going to leave and do my own thing and have enough under my belt that I would know what I wanted that to be. And so it's an interesting segue because last year, right before COVID, I felt like it was that moment and I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. I thought I might write a book or perhaps start my own company. And I had been thinking about a Senate run even then. But I knew that I was ready to go and do something and make it sort of in my own image. And that was really exciting. Now, how did you decide to leave the government? So you didn't even just go part time, right? Nope. I was very fortunate to get a job at the Laboratory for Analytic Sciences, which moved me down here. And I was serving as the mission director It was on North Carolina State University's campus, and it was an industry academic government lab focused on analytics. We were working on a lot of cutting edge things in the innovation space, like machine learning, Internet of Things was another thing we were working on, things sort of in that vein. And it was fabulous. It was so great to have the opportunity to shape the future of analysis, shape the future of intelligence by working with engineers from all of the different sectors. It was something I'd always wanted to do. And it actually almost was like having my own business as the mission director, because you're deciding what pieces to put together. I worked with outstanding people from all the different sectors. One of the things I think about having a long career in intelligence is it's very humbling. You're always working with people who are so incredible and so smart, and you always feel like you have the least to offer in the room, but it also makes sure that you're bringing your best every day. And it was just a phenomenal experience to cap off my career. It was a three-year tour down here. And in my second year, I made the decision that 
this was sort of a good way. I had grown and I was at a point where I was doing the job that I had always wanted to do to bring everything I had to bear against that job at the lab. And also my family loved North Carolina. I look in on my parents and had moved them here as well. And everybody loved it. We had some family meetings and we decided that we would like to stay here. And simultaneously, I decided that it was time for me to grow some more. I was getting a little bit comfortable and I needed to find the next challenge. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. What does a family meeting look like for your family? <laughs> was this something your parents did growing up or was this something you instituted? So we had family meetings when I was growing up, but not as frequently as I have them. We sit around the table and we have a topic and everyone gets a turn to discuss. It's very much like a session of Congress would be. And, you know, there are questions, there are opportunities for rebuttals, and then we'll generally take a vote. And it's been very effective for us. And the kids really enjoy it because they get to have a voice. That was one thing I remember really liking about it when I was a kid was having the opportunity to actually say stuff. And even though you have a very different perspective when you're young than your parents do and you don't have all the variables for what you're talking about, there's something about being listened to when you're young, when you're a woman, when you're anywhere doing anything that makes you feel like a part of something. I think people feeling listened to is the most important thing that people can do for others. Absolutely. I don't think that we have to agree, but I think people need to speak. They need to speak authentically and feel comfortable speaking and feeling like you heard them. I might have gotten better through this through trying to improve my own marriage, you know, like the repeating, let me, let me make sure I heard you correctly. Or (laughs) is there anything more like you just keep letting the person talk until they've talked themselves out. And just sometimes that own act of letting the person say their piece and you listening and repeating back words to acknowledge that you heard and understood them is a massive step. So it doesn't even matter the outcomes. But I want to know, does everyone in your family have an equal vote? So we do. <laughs> I knew it. Everybody, <laughs> I sigh because my son is three. So it's a little challenging with him sometimes just to get him to answer the question in a way that's relevant to what we're talking about. But we do try to make sure that everybody gets a voice and we absolutely do give all the voices equal consideration, which sometimes makes for longer meetings or multiple meetings. But it's good practice for this job. Where did you grow up? 
I was born in Richmond, Virginia, and then we moved to Charlottesville for a short time. And then I spent the majority of my years growing up in South Florida in a town that was small called Tequesta, which is right north of Jupiter, which was also small, but is now not. So you lived there from middle school through high school? We moved there when I was seven, and we were there until I graduated. Now, you're the youngest of three children? I am the third of four, and I'm the only girl. So it's some days a miracle that I'm here. (laughs) What did your parents do for a living? My dad had actually been a scientist. He was a genetics researcher and then left that to go and open a family business with my grandfather. It was an inventory company and later a restaurant. And whoa, 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 whoa. We got to unpack that for a second. You say that so casually. First of all, scientists typically don't take a huge amount of risk, right? Like they're not people who are entrepreneurial bent. (laughs) But then to go from a scientist to an inventory company, which is like dramatically different, but maybe he loved the organization of it, like the, the accounting and the organization. But then a restaurant from being a genetics researcher, what kind of restaurant was it? It was kind of everything. It was pub food, but there was a lot of fresh seafood because it was in Florida and we were right on the ocean. And it was just a lot of really good quality food, but sort of that pub casual feeling to it. And I, of course, grew up in the family business. And what did your mom do throughout all this? So my mom met my dad working for the inventory company and she was phenomenal Back when you had the big desktop calculators, they were working on Casios as they were doing the inventories. And my mom actually got to the point where she was faster than the calculator. And people from Casio came to see her do a demonstration to understand what they had to do to improve their product. Was she like a math savant? She wasn't. She wasn't necessarily a math savant, but she was just really, really fast and really, really good at what she was doing. She has this ability to get into a new environment and figure it out and thrive. So that's how they met. And then she, of course, uh, stayed home to raise us, but not in the traditional way. I was, we have pictures of me on a blanket in the office, right? Because they were growing the family business. And then she worked at the restaurant too. We all did. So business has really been a family affair in my family growing up. And it's what I know and it's what I've seen. And it shaped the way I think about things as an adult. What role did you have at the restaurant? So my father talks about the inventory business and starting on the line in a grocery store, counting items and doing the actual inventory and the importance of working every job so that you know what those jobs are and you bring that experience and that knowledge as you're going to different jobs. So I actually started in the restaurant as a busser. I did the server. I worked with the line cooks. I worked with the pastry chef. And by the time I was graduating college, I was serving as Sunday night manager and working on accounts payable and payroll in the back of the house. 
So that was a really neat experience. And I got it. I have a lot of respect for doing that. And I've tried to do it in every job that I've had and in my career. Did they pay you? They did. Not enough, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So did you have a 401k? Did they give you a 401k early? I did not have a 401k. I was an hourly employee and that was how that worked. But my parents were really, really good to me. We are Italian and my grandparents on both sides came over. And so we still are close enough to that experience that culturally, you're always trying to make it better for the next generation than for yourself. And so my parents absolutely did that. My grandparents did that, not just for my parents, but for me. And it's absolutely something that I'm trying to do for my kids as well. So both your parents are Italian. They are. And they're first generation. Both your parents were first generation. They are first generation born here, certainly. So you're raised in Florida with a restaurant-owning family that they had two businesses at the same time or one sequential after another? They had both at the same time. And you decide somehow that you were going to go into politics? (laughs) Are you watching Family Ties? And were you like, Alex P. Keaton is my hero? How? (laughs) That's what I think, because Brian loved Alex P. Keaton. (laughs) Was the hippie dad, but like... I feel like that's fitting. I I didn't know that about him, but that feels very fitting. Well, I feel like most Republican people of our age watched Family Ties growing up. Almost everybody watched Family Ties, and you either identified with Alex or you didn't, right? Like, <laughs> It's a defining moment in any child's life <laughs> from the 80s. <laughs> How did you decide? Like, I'm fascinated. You're not even raised in a political family. Where the heck does this desire to go into politics come from? How random? It is a little bit random. I was raised not to take for granted this freedom and the privilege, but also the great responsibility of being a patriot, of voting, of participating in the country and learning English and doing some of these things to show respect for being here and how happy we are to be here. So Basically, they weren't in politics, but they followed politics very closely. When I was, you know, three, four years old, I would watch Sesame Street and then Electric Company. And then my dad would come home and we'd watch the news together at night. That was around the time that President Reagan was coming into play. And I remember watching him and just being fascinated. I took some of that with me. My parents always wanted to make sure that I knew about current events. They always wanted to make sure that I was comfortable speaking with people and speaking my mind. And of course, there was also a patriotic angle to that as well, where my parents raised me to be a patriot. And so although it was not clear to me at the time, I knew I would be a good citizen or I would try to be a good citizen. And this is how it materialized much later. I did not have plans to be a politician. But you go off to American University. So how did you decide where you were going to go off to college and what you were going to major in? I had honestly thought that I was going to be a ballerina and sign with a company And I was trained in classical ballet and tap and jazz and modern and contemporary and the whole nine. But I loved classical ballet from the time I was three years old until I was 
getting ready to go to college. And I was dancing with a company that was about 45 minutes away. And I had been accepted to the Joffrey Ballet's program. And I had thought that that was what I was going to be doing. At the same time, I was also in debate in student Congress and really policy was my passion, debating policy and trying to advance a cause that I believed was important. And that was sort of a competing priority for me. When it came time to pick a college, I went and I looked at NYU because I thought they had both. And I thought I could be a lawyer or a dancer and I could decide later. And NYU was sort of not an option. And so I looked at American University. I looked at several schools. American just sort of spoke to me. And it spoke to the part of me that knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, do something with the government, do something to serve my country. And it was in Washington, D.C., which was a great locale for trying to really get that practitioner education, not just that book education. So I went for it. Did you dance through college? I did not. It was a really clean break for me. And I think it had to be that way. I just was so enamored by it. And it taught me so many things like how to really focus on something and how to really have a work ethic at something. Those are things I've tried to apply in other areas as I've gone through my life. But it was a passion that I had. And I felt like I was either going to do it or I had to step away from it. And and I did step away from it and started pursuing other avenues. What did you do for a physical outlet in college? I would go to the gym and work out. I would run and I would do stairs and I would do weights. That's such a change from being a ballerina. Most ballerinas never weightlift, do they? That's right, because you don't want the bulk. You want the long lean. I definitely needed a physical outlet in college. So I can't imagine going from about to be a professional ballerina to then not having that. So tell us about your experience at American. So I went to Washington, D.C. at 17 years old. And coming from a small town in Florida, it was a big change. This was not like... Legally Blonde, like Legally Blonde, too. I, I, I'm sure there are some elements of that in there. Uh, you know, I'll let you be the judge of which one. I'm sorry. I have like images of Legally Blonde, too, where she goes to Washington. A combination of Alex P. Keaton and Legally Blonde. I feel like this is, you know, the ad sells itself, right? Who wouldn't vote for that? You're in D.C., You're in American, which is a little bit far away. American, from a traffic perspective, is quite far from the central hop in action because it's all the way up on Penley Town. But somehow you get involved in politics. I do. I was very fortunate. I got a internship with a congressman working actually for Newt Gingrich's freshman Congress as they were coming in. Such a phenomenal moment in history to really go and work for them, especially with my personality being very type A and wanting to get ahead of things and see really strong leadership. It was such a great opportunity because people came in with a plan. They said, we're going to throw this legislation in the first hundred days. 
and we're all going to agree to do it and we're all going to back it. And they had a plan. There were so many of them that were freshman congressmen. They were serving for the first time. They brought this energy that was just so wonderful to be around. And they really wanted to get things done. And they did. And being able to witness that moment in history just really shaped a lot of my thinking about politics and what was possible, about patriotism and what was possible, almost to the point where I probably naively thought it was going to be easy and it's the way it always worked. But then you also ended up working for other people through college. From that job, somebody came to me and said, hey, you're awesome. We want you to come work on a presidential campaign. And I said, I'm sorry. And they said, a presidential campaign. Yes. Bob Dole's presidential campaign. And so I was actually working on both at the same time. I would ride the Metro between them. I would work them on different days. A lot of the work on the Dole campaign I could do at night. I was carrying a full schedule. I was a freshman honors student. I was working two internships. And I also had a job at Urban Outfitters in Georgetown. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA certified 8A, hub zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Would you describe yourself as incredibly high energy? Do you not sleep? Where does this come from? I think I have my ups and downs like anybody else, but... I try to really focus and I try to remember what my goals are, what's important to me at the moment, and use that to pull me through those times when I maybe feel like not doing things. I certainly have my moments where I'm not doing things too. (laughs) How long did you work on Joel's campaign for? I worked on it for about a year. I thought you worked for Mrs. Joel too. I did not. Did you meet her at the time? I never got to meet her. The closest that I got was there was a Republican dinner. I was sitting at a table way in the back and somebody came up and tapped me on the shoulder and I looked over and they said, we want you to come with us. And I was scared that I had done something wrong. And so I followed them and I got to go all the way up to the front and they said, you're sitting here. And I said, I'm sitting here. And I looked up and it was former Senator Bob Dole and they were seating me at his table. And so I got to shake his hand and talk with him and the media was there, which was really cool. The first thing that I did, and this is really uncool, especially as a DC insider, but I don't care, I'm gonna tell it. I was so excited at that moment, given his background and his history as a war hero and all the things that he had done. It was a huge moment for me. So I excused myself very calmly. And at the time we were still using pay phones, I'm dating myself. I ran to the bathroom and there's a pay phone outside and I called my parents. And I said, mom, dad, you're not going to believe it. I'm sitting at Bob Dole's table. 
And then I hung up and I went back and, you know, calmly had a conversation like I did it all the time. So it was a very exciting moment for me. Well, nowadays, could you imagine what that would like be in today's era? You'd probably either text under the table (laughs) and or you'd secretly do a live like a Facebook live or something. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Very different times. (laughs) And then make a TikTok video about it. That's right. With emojis. Lots of emojis. And where was Bob Dole a senator from? Oh, that's a good question. You're really trying my knowledge. I know Elizabeth was North Carolina. Well, that's why I asked about her, because she was one of only two female senators ever from North Carolina. That's right. And she is quite an extremely impressive woman in her own right. Yeah, I was right. It's Kansas. I just didn't want to say it wrong. He was the (laughs) senator from Kansas. She just looked it up under the table. (laughs) Even though we're not recording video, she did it (laughs) under the table. (laughs) See, modern technology is a beautiful thing. You graduate from American? I did not. I transferred to Whitman College in eastern Washington State, a small town called Walla Walla, after my sophomore year. And I graduated from there. Why do you go all the way from Washington, D.C. to Washington State? This is really geeky, but I felt like I had to drown out the noise. There was so much stimulation and so many opportunities to do things that even though I was doing very well in school, I did not feel like I was getting the good theoretical foundation in the way that I needed to to use it later to do something. And so I decided to look at places that were a little bit less involved with things that I would want to go after separate from school so that I could actually focus on getting that foundation that I would need later. And so I looked at a lot of schools on the West Coast because I had never been there. I looked at some schools on the East Coast as well. And Whitman offered me a nice scholarship and they had a very good program. And so I moved and I finished my degree there. How completely fascinating. So you are the epitome of a successful DC up and comer at American. You're working on two campaigns, one of them presidential, honor student, and also a side job. And you, of your own volition, say, I need to go deeper and cut out the noise to really delve deep into the understanding and background so that I can then provide more value going forward. Absolutely. And it was a very hard decision because working on these campaigns, I was attending a lot of political functions and I got to know a lot of people in the party very well. And the donors that were attending over time got to know me very well and saw me in some ways as the future of the Republican Party, which I loved. In the 90s, one of the great things about the Republican Party was they were looking for the future of the party. They did want to bring young people along. And so donors started talking to me about running as a sophomore in college. And I was seeing myself going down that path and thinking that I wanted to go there, but that I didn't know enough and wanting to pull back from it. That is a decision that I sometimes think about, you know, what would have been the right decision if there was a right decision. 
and no one told you to do this. This came from you. So this yes. voice inside you said, I have to get off this merry-go-round of which you were the star. I had to get out of the noise so that I could really have something to offer, something more to offer is what I felt like. And that's not true for everybody. And it might not have even been true for me, but it's the way that I was feeling. And so I went to this very small town in Eastern Washington and I just really studied and put my nose in a book and focused on learning. And it was such a great opportunity because there's this moment I think that everybody has in life, whether you go to college, don't go to college, whatever, where something clicks for you and you really learn how to think. And sometimes you get it when you're younger. Sometimes you get it when you're older. Sometimes people say that they never got it, which I don't know that that's true. I think everybody gets it at some point. But that is where I had that moment. And I said, okay, I get it. I know how to think organically now. I know how to work through a problem. I've got the critical thinking. And then I felt like I could move forward. What do you graduate with from Whitman College? It was a Bachelor of Arts in International Security and Political Science. So where do you go after college? I wasn't certain what I was going to do because political science and international security, you're either going to be a politician or you're going to teach. That was sort of the the perception that I had. And so I actually looked at joining the military. They were sort of trying to bring me along and recruit me. I looked at some nonprofits and ultimately made the decision that I was gonna move back to Washington, DC. I'm a Gen Xer. So this is of course during the mid nineties when coffee shops are arising and a lot of people coming out of college were having a really hard time getting a job in their field. And so I was lucky to land a job at a dot-com. I worked at policy.com Uh, which was great because it combined policy and technology. And I got to be part of the dot-com bubble and see what that looked like for a little bit. Were you part of the dot-com crash? I was not. I was out before then. I only spent uh, about a year in that job before I sort of decided it wasn't quite what I needed to be doing. But it was a great experience. I learned HTML. It's the only computer (laughs) language that I know. (laughs) You didn't ever learn Python, despite overseeing the analytics? So I learned a little bit of Python and I learned a little bit of SQL or SQL, depending on where you come from. People call it both. Uh, but I didn't know I was until I sat down with a computer engineer that was like, "You're that's SQL or that's Python. And I was like, oh, I'm doing it. Great. <laughs> to you, it was just a method to get to the data. Right. What do you do after policy.com? I worked at the Olive Garden for a while. And... The reason was I was sending out 200 resumes a month and I couldn't get a job in my field. And that made me like pretty much everybody else who was coming out of school at that time uh, with a degree that wasn't sort of what you would call a hard skills degree where you could go right to something and it was clear that you were going to that thing. I decided to go back to school. So I started to go back to school for my master's and I decided that I was going to pursue intelligence. So you must have been like one of the few waitresses at the Olive Garden serving the endless breadsticks saying, I want to go in Intel. 
I, you know what? My, it was a return to my roots. My dad, one of the things he always said as I was learning the restaurant business, whenever I would maybe gripe about it a little bit, was I'm teaching you skills. You can go anywhere in the world and be a server and make a living. You can do anything you want to do and sustain yourself. And I would always kind of roll my eyes, but it ended up being very true for me because during that time, that is how I sustained myself. And it wasn't awful either because you're talking to people and that is something that I love to do. I find people very interesting and I got to sort of spend some time doing that and serving up some Italian food. Did you have student debt from undergrad? Absolutely. How much student debt did you have? Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember entirely. I prob- it's probably something that I blocked out. <laughs> Honestly, I did not have as much as a lot of other people. And so I felt very fortunate in that regard. My parents helped me. I had saved up pretty much all the money from when I was working in the family restaurant to go to college. And so, but even with all of that, I went to private schools. And so that's very expensive. And I definitely came out carrying some debt. So you're working at the Olive Garden and you get your master's in intelligence from where? So I didn't get finished my master's. I was going to American University again and working and recruiters came to the college campus as tends to happen with a lot of different professions and disciplines and companies. I met with the recruiters from a few different intelligence agencies, one being CIA and one being NSA. And I got interviews with both. I went on the interviews and I was offered positions in both. So how did you decide? I was looking at both. I was, I think, a little bit nervous about dedicating myself to a job where I wasn't entirely certain where I would be, what the lifestyle would be like. You're talking about CIA? Yeah, I had studied intelligence. I didn't know anything more, though, than, you know, really anybody else. I had seen the movies. And as much as I had some mentors that were pushing me in that direction, because uh, they thought it would be a good fit for me, I think... I'm not a risk taker all the time. And I think I was more comfortable getting my foot in the door with something that was going to be a little bit more predictable, maybe is the right word, (laughs) at least from what I'd seen in the movies. (laughs) Did you always have a vision of getting married and having your own children? Particularly growing up female in the time period that I did the 80s and the 90s, the image of women was changing in some ways. And so I saw myself in a lot of different ways. I saw myself in very traditional ways where I would be a mom and I would stay home with my children. And a lot of that is cultural. And at the same time, I saw myself doing something else. And I didn't know what that something else was, but I felt like I went to college I used my brain and I really wanted to apply that to something and make a contribution to the world in some way. And it was hard not to feel that. And I think that like many women, those are competing priorities in my life ever since. Were the interviews at NSA and CIA very different? Like was the CIA like a bright light interrogation (laughs) style? Was NSA a stereotype of like, they're not looking at you. They're like staring at the questions. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think that people in HR at both of the agencies are fairly similar. When you have sort of an interview, what they call an operational interview, though, where somebody's interviewing you that's actually in your field to see, to actually school you on on everything, that's when you can really start to tell the difference between the two. And I was lucky, though, because I got someone who was very outgoing and very easily could have been from any agency in the alphabet soup at NSA. And it's part of the reason I think I decided to go there. Now, tell us a bit about your career at NSA. I actually had started processing and had accepted a job with them before 9-11 happened. By the time 9-11 happened, I was almost done and almost in the door. I came in on 9 October 2001, and that was my enter on date before anything happened. It was a very interesting time to be coming in. I remember after 9-11 happened, just watching the news, constantly wanting to get in the door, wanting to contribute, wanting to do something, and just feeling so sad and so angry about everything that I was seeing, everything that I was watching families experience of these people, and just wanting to do something and be in that fight. So the timing for me was was really, really good because I had internalized 9-11 so much and everything that had happened that I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't doing something in that fight. Tell us a story about you're in a meeting and a general says something. <laughs> and how old are you at the time? Tell us a story. <laughs> I was 25 at the time, and it was my second-ish year at the agency. And I had spent the first two years sort of getting up to speed, learning how to do my job very, very quickly, and having a lot of independence and autonomy because everything in the world was just going crazy at that time. I mean, you can pick up a newspaper and see that. It was not unusual for me to be having opportunities to do things that you would never think that a 20-something would be doing, like contributing to the president's daily brief, like briefing staffers and congressional-related staffs. I actually had people that went down and testified that were coworkers of mine that went down and testified behind the smoky glass for the 9-11 commission. And as a new person... It's a little bit overwhelming, but it's really a make or break opportunity. There were some people that had a really hard time with it. And then there were some people who were able to rise to the occasion. And in this particular instance, I was briefing a four star who had come back that we were working very closely to support. And very abruptly, he was a, a general that had a reputation for very high standards and very low patience. Not unlike a lot of other generals, but to the extreme. I'm speaking and he stands up in the middle of the brief abruptly and he said, I want you to put her on a plane. I need her to support my troops in theater. When can you get her on a plane? And, you know, the part of the conversation that doesn't make it into my speech is uh, there was civilian leadership in the room. And because of the situation and because of what he was in charge of, they said, but, sir, she's a woman. And without missing a beat, he said, put her hair up and put a uniform on her and she's going to look just like everybody else. I don't care. Get her out there. And that was progressive feminism in DOD at that time. <laughs> Was it because women weren't allowed at the front lines? Why was it? Why did they even say, but she's a woman? 
I think because at the time it was very early, things were very tenuous. And although there were women out at the front line serving, people that were supporting them and people that were serving with them or, or helping them to serve weren't as used to that. We had been coming out of the 90s and the 90s, of course, were a time of peacemaking and peacekeeping through the UN. And it was a very different set of missions that were really getting the priority on the world stage than what you see abruptly after 9-11. And so sort of restarting that and what that looks like, I think, for some people was very foreign and very different from the culture that they had grown up in in the community. What were you saying that you think caused that reaction in the general? I always, as I'm speaking, I'm reading people. And I've been that way from the very beginning because you want to know, you want to read the room and know, are you connecting with people? Are they listening to you? Are you listening to them? Are you connecting? Because it's a critical part of your ability to do your job. And it's a critical part of your ability to make those connections. And I think that he was looking at it. I had been introduced as a young analyst. He knew that I had been at the agency only a short time. And to be saying these things and to be working in ways that people hadn't worked before, I think he just looked at it and he said, you know, I need that. I want one. How do I get one? (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel like that was a defining moment in your life? It really was. It's one of the proudest moments that I've ever had being a patriot and also, I think, being a people pleaser a little bit and trying to always strive to do my best and feeling very uncomfortable when I can't make things perfect or when I don't know something. That was a moment in my life where I felt like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm doing okay. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm providing a useful service to my country. Before you moved to North Carolina, you were working in the Counterterrorism Center? I was. I did a stint at the National Counterterrorism Center, and I had a really great time. The director was Mike Leiter there at the time. He was phenomenal. He was 37 and running probably, arguably, but probably the most important agency to the nation at the time. He had come out of law review. He had been a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and then he lands the director of NCTC, and just working near him, working on an issue and a group that was close proximity to him and getting to see him a lot, really set another example of, I want to be that. I want to take some of those tools with me and I want to apply them to what I'm going to do next. He was phenomenal and I'm a huge fan. Well, what I want to know about was like, was there like a table where you pull up the data and then you swipe it away and then you bring in another 3D hologram of Mr. Bad Guy and the video plays like. That sounds amazing. Let's do that. (laughs) I've always wanted to be where like, it's like the movie where you just swipe your hand and you pull in the right data and you're like, beep, boop, boop. And you have this gorgeous picture of the of the bad guy. And it's all like cool and 3D. That sounds great. Let's do that now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a lot of the things you see in movies, people are wowed by and they wonder if we have them. We have other things that are really incredible and I can't talk about them and they're not exactly what people see in the movie and they're not exactly what they think. But my jaw dropped 
every time. Uh, there were so many things that were cool to see. Things that you read about, though, that are in open source, like the 9-11 Commission, right? Connecting the dots was a big thing. What you're talking about, right? Having sort of everybody working together to have that complete picture. Those things are a challenge. They've been acknowledged in the public domain as a challenge. Intelligence is messy. And people have to be comfortable with that if they're going to thrive in it. Now, you moved to North Carolina and I get your Christmas card this year and it was quite a detailed Christmas card. Why don't you tell us what it contained? So we decided during the pandemic to do a cross-country road trip to visit the national parks, as many national parks as we could. And we got the kids in the car. We said, this is a unique opportunity. Eric's working from home. I'm currently home with the kids because I had just left the government and everybody was home all of a sudden. And Emmett was young. So we're going to get in the car and we're going to go. We mapped it out with some level of detail, but not so much that we couldn't change on the fly. And I think we visited over 20 states. I don't remember what the exact number is and over 20 national parks. And it was a phenomenal experience. And in many ways, it solidified in my mind that I was going to run for this office when I return. It was very inspirational. What happens that you decide that this is the year you're going to run to be a U.S. senator? My last assignment, I said, was working at the lab. And my first week at the lab, Senator Burr actually came to the lab and I had the opportunity to brief him. And I barely knew, I think, even what I was doing at the time. This was a startup in many ways. They were bringing in the second mission director, which was me, and really had just sort of established relationships and established the lab. And so we're still very much working to get the mission up. And I was like, what do I say about this? What am I going to do? So I had the opportunity to brief him. And there were some other people there as well. And I was fascinated by the directions that he took the conversation in and how much breadth he had, but also some depth on some of the different issues. He, of course, was the chair of the sissy. So he, of course, would have some, but I was really amazed and impressed by it and the conversations that were being had in that moment. Soon after that, I believe he started talking about in the press and stuff that he was not going to run again. And for me, this confluence of things made me go, maybe this is my moment. Maybe this is what I need to be doing next. And, you know, I sort of put it away in the back of my mind because, you know, we were a few years out from any election talk then. And then I revisited it last summer and started having conversations with my family about, you know, I think I really want to do this. I think this is my moment. I feel compelled to do this. And then, of course, everything that happened this past year on all sides of politics and just in the country in general from a very apolitical standpoint really made me feel like, okay, I think we need some grounding. I think we need to get some people in there who know what it's like to work with other people, to push things in a direction, to reinvigorate that sort of freshman Congress with Newt Gingrich mentality and really try to get everybody back on track, try and get the country back on track during a very difficult time. So I said, I'm going to do it. And what was the official milestone of putting your hat in the ring? 
There was a family meeting, I'm sure. There were many family meetings. These family meetings also included my parents as well. And I also spoke with my siblings because when you're putting yourself into a position like this, you're kind of putting everybody else in your life in a position like this as well. And I wanted to be respectful of that and that people haven't chosen that life, that it's something that I'm choosing and that they could be okay with that. So I spent a lot of time talking to people. Then we go on the road trip. It's during the pandemic. I'm seeing all of the beauty that America has to offer. I'm talking to wonderful people in several different states. I'm watching the pandemic play out as we're going across the nation. We are every night at midnight getting online because every state had the authority to handle it in their own way. And that was constantly changing as we're traveling, as we're learning more about the virus. So we're like, okay, can we go through Arizona today? Is there a checkpoint? Are we allowed to stay there? Every single day was different. The confluence of those things combined with current events, I said, I'm going to do it. So I decided. And at the end of March, I did a soft open. I did the website. I announced. I got a little bit of press. And then I filed my paperwork in, I believe, the end of April. And that is the federal paperwork with the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, is your Form 2, which establishes your candidacy. And on the heels of that, your Form 1, which stands up your committee for your fundraising. And then you do your state paperwork later. They don't make that available till the fall. Are you calling yourself a moderate Republican? I am a moderate Republican. When I was working in politics in college, I thought of myself more as a conservative and I have grown up and as I've experienced things in my life, I have changed some of my views, but also I believe the spot on the spectrum has moved some and that's not unusual. The pendulum swings, right? As people become more extreme on one end, people become more extreme on the other. When you're in times where people feel like their security is threatened, like the pandemic and the unemployment that followed and all of these sorts of things, people start getting very involved with what it is a very loaded and overused term now, identity politics, because it creates the security that people need to have in times that are difficult and uncertain. I'm definitely a Republican, but some of the things that people are prescribing as perhaps the America first agenda are not things that are either a priority for me to complete, and that's just out of pragmatism and what I believe is possible, working in a bipartisan way with a Democratic president. And then the parts of it that aren't pragmatic, you know, perhaps over time, I just have made some decisions to feel a little bit differently about the issues than I did when I was younger. Does moderate even exist anymore? It depends on who you talk to. I believe that there are a lot of people in the country who are moderate. They're probably not going to be the people that are working, for lack of a better term, in your establishment organizations, right? So card-carrying members that are Democrats or card-carrying members that are Republicans, people that are really engaged in their organizations and attending the meetings and holding positions. But I think that if you're talking about people at home who have watched events played out over the past couple of years and really thought about things and maybe aren't the most politically active, I think that if you ask them their questions, you'd find that they're somewhere in that moderate range. I think a lot of people are. Your campaign slogan is, it's possible. 
Where did you come up with that slogan? And what does it mean to you? It just came to me. We had just picked my logo and I had a couple of friends who were really, really helping me out. And one of the things that sort of drove my logo, which looks very different from a lot of logos today, it's round and it's got North Carolina in the middle, was somebody made a comment that it beckons back to nostalgia, the time when people had pins and wore pins for their political campaigns or had people wear pins and a time when people campaigned differently than they do now, very differently in a more personal way, in a small business kind of way. And I loved that. And it's why I picked the logo. And I was thinking very much about that as being my brand and the fact that that's how I wanted to run my campaign. And feeling very optimistic. Again, thinking back to that time when I worked in politics before and how positive I felt about it. And it just came to me. I was like, it's possible. In my life, and I've given speeches on this, there are lots of things that people said that couldn't be done or would be challenging convention or that I wouldn't do. And I spent my life challenging that. And so it's possible felt like a good fit for me. And my daughter, Lily, my oldest daughter came in the room and I showed it to her first. And I said, I think it's going to be this. And she said, I think that's perfect. I think of the Nelson Mandela quote, people always say it's impossible until it's done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the amazing thing about this life or the ability, right? Is just, you don't really know until you try. And sometimes it's a combination of skill and luck and timing. And it's really amazing what can be done. And my other favorite quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is this political analogy I actually use for building enterprise software. Tim Ferriss was interviewing someone about politics and he's like, I'm not really political. What can I do? And the person said the very, very best thing you can do is actually focus on your local community and your local politics. What I love about that and the analogy is one, you're doing something but you're changing your context and your environment. And I have found in technology, a lot of people have a hard time imagining what's possible until it's done or the vision exists. And similar, so for politics or changing national laws. So let's just use gay marriage, for example, right? It started in cities and in states. And then slowly it changes and then it becomes a sweeping national reform, right? So like the adoption cycle. In technology, you do something very similar where you build a representative example. So you get a system working, you build the entire stack and you solve the problem for one person. Even though you want it to be Amazon of today, You started with selling books and selling books effectively. And it's the same thing. You have to give people a very clear image that they can essentially touch, see, smell, sniff, walk around. And then they're not going to take it exactly. They have to have their own customizations and adaptations for their specific context, environments, and needs. And then they take that and they apply it there because they saw someone push through. One of Nyla's slogans is that we say we can take 
innovative solutions and make them enterprise. And a lot of people cannot cross that divide. Most people can't take a white piece of paper and turn it into something or they turn it into something that is essentially just a drawing on a paper that you might crumble up and throw away. But how do you take a real idea and make it real life? And that's where I have a T-shirt that says execution is everything because it's not enough to have the idea. It's to have the energy and the audacity and the influence to put a team together and excite them to really make it real. And that's the hard part. The hard part isn't the idea. The hard part is seeing it through to making it come alive. So I love that slogan and it's very inspiring. I love what you just said. And I feel like I want to take that from you and use it when I speak now. (laughs) Well, Nyla is an 8A contracting firm. So you can direct an award to us for under 4 million. (laughs) I'm writing that down. (laughs) Now you're running your campaign in quite a different way. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the overview of your campaign from a political perspective? The political platform is basically to prioritize tiers of action items, very similar to sort of, again, the freshman Congress under Newt Gingrich. They came in with an idea of what they wanted to do. It's my plan. And a lot of people who are Republicans are going to be somewhere on the America First agenda, which is going to be basically some of the 30 bullet points that President Trump put forward for his second term as what his agenda would be. You're picking some of those or you're emphasizing some and de-emphasizing other ones. You may not agree with all of them, but some subsets going to be in what you're doing. And so I feel like people kind of know for the most part where I am going to be. So how can I tell them more? And I decided to create this prioritization so that people would understand what my plan of attack would be if I were to go in there on the first day and actually try and get some stuff done. You mean when you go in there? Yes, when I go in there. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, the first tier is very pragmatic. It's passing a budget on time because Congress hasn't done that in 20 years. And you, of course, know, and anybody who works in any government agency or foreign associated contractor knows, it really affects the government. And we spend a lot of money and time every time that we have to wait for a continuing resolution, every time they can't pass a budget. So A, number one for me, and it's personal, is to pass a budget on time and make that happen. Fiscal responsibility is another aspect that doesn't mean spend no money. It means let's spend it prudently. It's something we should be doing and it's something that needs consideration. And then, of course, defense of the country, which is close to my heart. And if you look in the Constitution, I'm a constitutional Republican before anything else. Those are the things we're supposed to be doing. So that's like the first tier is things that affect everybody in the United States, right? Like, let's get those right. This is the foundation. If we don't get this right, then everything else crumbles. And then the second tier is things that affect a good portion of our citizenship. So it would be social issues like immigration, education, things of that nature. And then if you are able to sustain those two levels of priority, the third is like dessert, right? You want to talk about those highly individual individualized issues. You want consideration for specifically who you are and the layers in the identity politics that make you the person that you are. 
that's a privilege, right? That's something that is a very evolved civilization. And we've got to hold our own in the first two tiers before we can really do justice in a way that's going to be sustainable to some of those more individualized goals that people have. Do you have a checklist of where you stand on the divisive issues? I always feel like the big one is abortion and women's rights. So let's talk about that as a female moderate Republican. What does women's rights look like to you? I want to answer the checklist question as well. I don't have a checklist. And there are two reasons that I don't have a checklist. The first one is I believe that it doesn't do justice to the the dimension of all of these issues. Not many people can say in a very blanket, binary way, yes to something huge like immigration or abortion or, you know, no gun law. Right. Any of those things. And I think the media has done us a disservice over time by trying to get us to that usable form of information. On the one hand, it's a very good thing because it allows you to quickly consume a lot of information. On the other hand, I think it takes away from our understanding of context and sometimes some of the depth and complexity that resides within these issues. So that's the first reason. The second reason that I don't have a checklist is because my views personally put me on the Republican spectrum. The things that are important to me are small government, defending the Constitution, things of that nature, defending rights for all, like for everyone, because that is what the Constitution says. And so although those are my personal rights, they make me a Republican according to the classification that I get. And it suits me to serve a certain group of people. And we can use that as a shorthand for what we're going to do. My primary function is to represent my constituency. And so if I have an issues card that tells you what I'm going to be, that's great that you know what I am and what I think. But a huge part of my job is to take into consideration what everybody else thinks as well. And so it just felt disingenuous to sort of try and talk about that with any specificity because... It is what I feel, but at the same time, it's going to be highly influenced by what it is that everyone else and the people feel. That's my job. How has that worked so far when you meet the press? So I think everybody wants you to take a stance on the issues. I think in particular, you know, one thing that's become very common for Republicans is to have a Trump score. People that have been in office before probably have, this is how I voted compared with what Trump was putting forward, things of that nature. But I stick to it. I will talk issues. I have been in debates. I've been in public forums where they've had all the senatorial candidates and they've allowed people to stand up and ask questions. I'm happy to answer them. I cannot contribute to the soundbite culture. I cannot contribute to people saying she's this, this, and this, and that's what she is. That's not what I'm seeing in other people. That's not what I want to know about my constituency. And I ask for the same courtesy. Take a couple minutes, get to know me, get to know your candidates, expect more from your government and from the media. Now you're running this campaign on essentially no money, a mere $5,000. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and why you're not pursuing these big dinners and these big donors? Because it's not hard enough to run for a U.S. Senate position. I felt like, you know, I needed to make it a little bit more challenging. (laughs) Uh, But 
campaign finance reform is something that people say that they feel passionately about. It is something that I feel passionately about. But even people who say that they feel passionately about it can't find a way to make a crack in that. The last election that we had was the most expensive election ever. And the senatorial race was by far the most expensive ever. And we're setting a precedent there. They fully expect 22 to be because it's so contentious. It's going to be such a difficult race that there's going to be a lot of money, North Carolina particularly. I feel like the best way to start making a crack on something is to do it. Do it yourself, live it, be it, let others see it, and hope that they follow suit if you show it can be done. In the little time that I've been doing this, I'm not saying that it's just because of me, but there are two Democratic candidates in the senatorial race that have come out and not said that they would take no donations, but one said that she would only take grassroots donations. The other one said, I'm not going to take it from this kind of PACs because I don't believe in these issues. And then, of course, Senator Cruz recently came out and said he wasn't going to take money from PAC either. You can see that if you start to do things in a certain way, other people will start to do things in a certain way. And eventually you're changing the world and you have to believe that that is true. It's possible. One thing I find very interesting is because of your previous work at NSA, you have lived a life that is extremely private. You didn't even have a Facebook page (laughs) to share photos of your twins to your parents. It's crazy. Now you are vlogging your entire experience. What is that like for you to go from intensely private to very public? It's like coming out of a wind tunnel and then going into a different wind tunnel is kind of what it feels like. It's been a lot all of a sudden. I've been lucky because... I haven't been on the North Carolina politics scene. And so my soft opening has been baby steps. And I have had the fortunate opportunity to sort of control at what pace some of that happens. Okay, today I'm going to be on Twitter. I'm going to be on Twitter and I'm going to see, you know, what it is. It's okay. And giving myself the pep talk. And you got trolled already. So happy for you. (laughs) Yes, that was amazing. I was like, yes, I'm here. I have arrived. I'm part of the Twitter community and I'm accepted. Sort of trying to take it slowly, but fully realizing that, you know, that hopefully there will come a point at which I don't get to sort of control that as much and what the aperture is going to be and the speed at which it occurs. There's no preparing for that. And whether you're coming from a very private lifestyle or you probably have done politics your whole career, there's no preparing you for it. It's not a natural thing. You have to roll with it and you have to do your best. And hopefully the fact that you have worked in pressureful situations will help you. But my threshold is different from my lifestyle, right? Nobody's going to die if I have a bad interview, if I don't win in the election, if the pictures from a not flattering angle, right? It's going to affect me, but I'm going to get over myself. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Especially if you're being authentic to who you are and really moving forward in causes that you believe. I think that's the most critical for anything you do in life is that it aligns with your authentic beliefs and your mission for what you think is a purposeful life. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of political consultants and data scientists. And we talked earlier about how campaigns used to be run is not at all how campaigns are run 
now, which is fine. And that style works for some people, but I knew I wanted to keep my campaign small. And I knew honestly, I wouldn't need a lot of money to run it in the way I wanted to run it because I wanted to be in control of it. And I wanted it to be representative of the things that I wanted authentically. I didn't want to waver on anything. I didn't want to soften my views or strengthen my views artificially. I wanted people to get to know me and ask me questions about what I think and that I've been true to that so far. And I fully intend to stay that. Let's talk gender for a little bit. Now you come from an Italian family, mm-hmm. which is typically very uh, machismo environment where the boys are heralded. You're <laughs> the only girl and you have three brothers. You're a ballerina. So leaning into being as girly as possible, but yet your personality, I wouldn't call you outspoken, I would call you more like a steel rod who's going to like make an impact. How would people who worked with you describe you? Throughout a 20-year career, you're a lot of different people. So it would depend on people that knew me early would say something different from people who knew me later would say something different from people who have known me the whole time. I certainly experimented with leadership styles. I experimented with different tools in the toolbox. And, you know, over the time, I've been a lot of different people in my life. I hope that's not unlike other people, but I've always tried to be kind as much as I could. And sometimes my kindness has been mistaken for weakness, and I'm not afraid to come out and show it when I need to. But I've always tried to come from a place of remembering my manners, respecting other people, being humble and believing that there's something bigger than me. But be firm. Be pragmatic, but be firm. Have you been called bossy? I have been called bossy. Absolutely. A hundred percent have been called bossy. Starting at what age? Oh, my whole life. Uh, probably two. <laughs> probably two. I don't know that I ever got out of my three-nagers in that regard, right? From my the age of three, the three-nagers, that's what we call them. I think I've been that my whole life. But what you can know about me is the side of me that is a perfectionist means I don't like to speak on things that I don't feel like I've fully researched and that I know what I'm talking about. So when I do choose to speak, It's going to be on something that I'm pretty firm on, that I've spent a lot of time on, and that I pretty much know where I stand. That's not to say that I won't change my point of view with new information, but, you know, working in an operational environment, having to make calls, life or death calls in minutes with partial information, you have to get comfortable with that part of yourself. And I own it. Have you been called aggressive? I have been called aggressive, but people who have a tendency to feel threatened by that or call it out like it's not a good thing, I have a tendency to try and work more with because what it means is they're seeing a perspective they're based on a moment in time and they're not understanding what drives that and they're not understanding what drives me. And so what I'll do is I'll actually lean into it. And a lot of people are a little bit uncomfortable with that, especially engineers, especially working in the DOD environment. But I've managed to successfully win over a lot of people who maybe were a little bit intimidated or placed labels on me early on in the game. They say sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, but it also sometimes breeds love or understanding. And from a marketing perspective, innovation doesn't happen because you had a good idea once. 
it also takes a while for people to marinate on the idea and buy in. My husband, he'll say at work that people finally come around to his good idea. (laughs) I view it as, you know, I'm going to have to say it. I'm going to have to say it this way. I'm going to have to say it a different way. Some people like pictures. Some people like a Word document. It's a whole variety to let people think through it, process it, understand what it means to them, where their role might fit. But I think aggressive is often the person who leads the conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, as somebody who's coming from an analyst background, who spent a lot of time working with engineers. Married to one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's they think differently. It's very culturally different. And it's been really important to work with them and help them to understand it's not that your ideas aren't good. It's that the stakes are very, very high when we work with whatever you're providing as your technology, your analytic, your machine learning. And you need to understand a little bit about what we're trying to do and what the impacts are. A lot of it, because the tech is there to serve a mission. The tech will always change, but at the end of the day, it's there to serve a mission. And it's not that we don't love to be early adopters and try things, but we want to try things in a controlled environment. We don't want to suit people up and take them in right to harm's way with that. We want to be sure that it's ready to go. We've tested it a billion times under different conditions and that it's as good as we can get it. Some engineers get it and some engineers don't. Well, before we wrap up, I have a question for you. What book has really made a big impact on you, either personally or professionally? I know this is easy, actually. Uh, And it goes back to college. So I was really enamored by this idea of Solidarnosc, the workers' revolution during the Cold War, right, that happened in Poland and other places. And there was a guy who was a writer by the name of Václav Havel, and he actually went on to be either the president or the prime minister of the Czech Republic. And anything by him because he talks about it's possible. He talks about how it takes one person to make a difference. He talks about that Radio Free Europe experience, right? Like if you believe in democracy and you want it, go flicker your lights, right? He talks about that spirit. And that is what motivates me. It may not be as extreme as some of the things that he writes about, but that dissident spirit I think has to be present if you're going to change the world. So that is hands down, bar none, it for me. Tell us something about yourself that might surprise us. So I actually am a little bit of an introvert, even though I really like talking to people and learning about people. And I have clearly thrust myself out into the most extroverted job that you could possibly have. I need a lot of time to recharge my batteries. And sometimes it really takes rallying to get up and speak in front of people or to be on a podcast. And it's something I will agonize over for weeks and weeks and weeks because I'm a little bit of an introvert. Thank you. This is, you get an award. This is the longest interview. It was so great (laughs) to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much. This was awesome. I had a lot of fun. I'm taking away your analogy about technology and politics. All is local. I love that. And I'm going to use it. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, 
and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.